0: Well, take your Bibles out and turn to the Gospel of John. Well, this morning I'm preaching a sermon I've entitled, Blind for God's Glory. Blind for God's Glory. When we started our study in the Gospel of John back in January, I told you then, and I've reminded you several times since then... That the Apostle John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, organized his gospel account of Jesus, not in some random haphazard way, just thoughts that came to his mind. No, they're very specific, and he has seven specific signs or miracles that he records throughout his gospel account. We've seen five of them already. This is the sixth one we'll consider today, and there's one more as we get to John chapter 11. Just by way of review, we've seen that Jesus first... Turned water into wine. That was the first miracle John records. Secondly, he healed the nobleman's son from a distance. Third, we saw that he healed the paralytic who was beside the pool for over 30 years. Next, he fed the 5,000 plus women and children with a little boy's lunch. After that, we saw the miracle of Jesus walking on the water to his disciples who were on the boat in the storm. Today we're going to see the healing of a man who was born blind, and then finally again in John chapter 11, the final miracle John records is the miracle of raising four-day dead Lazarus from the grave. Again, these records of Jesus' miracles in the Gospel of John are not accidental or random, but they're very intentional. And specific. In fact, John says at the end of his gospel, if we recorded all the things Jesus said and all the things Jesus did, there aren't enough books in the world to contain all that he said and did. But these are recorded so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, interestingly, the four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, record Jesus' giving sight to the blind more often than any other ailment or malady. He, five times the gospel writers record uh, blind people receiving their sight from Jesus. And specifically this one this morning is a blind man who has been blind from birth. And as such, this one in particular really serves as a metaphor for every human being's condition being born into this world spiritually. All of us were born spiritually blind. We could not see the truth. We could not understand the truth. Further, his healing ministry, and specifically healing of those who are blind, is a fulfillment of the Messianic prophecy in Isaiah 35.5 that says, The eyes of the blind will be opened. What a glorious prediction about Jesus. Well, as we turn the page now to chapter 9, Uh, we are going to be turning the page where Jesus directs his attention for the rest of the Gospel of John to really be focusing on his disciples, on developing and discipling and training and nurturing them. He turns away from the people. He turns away from the crowds at the end of chapter 8 when Jesus says, before Abraham was there in the temple, I am. And the religious leaders and the people ostensibly picked up stones to throw at him because of his public declaration of deity. Now, from here on out, he's going to be pursuing the disciples intimately and training them and developing them in understanding the ways and the purposes of God. This miracle here in John 9, at the very beginning, of congenital blindness, it takes up this whole chapter, chapter 9. The miracle itself is accomplished in just two verses, verses 6 and 7, but all 41 verses of this this chapter are devoted to the miracle and the after effects of the miracle. If you look in your Bible, if you have it open to chapter 9, you see that particularly in the ESV, there are these paragraph breaks, and each paragraph following this miracle has to do with discussion, dialogue, debate, interrogation related to the miracle, we're going to consider the next one, verses 8 through 12, at, towards the end of this chapter, just to devote a small bit of time to it. And this is where the, the man who was born blind, who's been healed, has a discussion with the neighbors about the healing. Next week, we'll look at the next several paragraphs in verses 13 through 17. This man is interrogated by the Pharisees, the, those who had this hard-hearted ideal towards Jesus. And this uh, miracle particularly we see in verse 14 was accomplished on the Sabbath day, so they were particularly upset about that. You move to the next paragraph, verses 18 through 23, and they then interrogate this man's parents. Tell us, if this is the guy, was he born blind? And then when they say, well, he can answer for himself, he once again is interrogated by the Jews in verses 24 through 34. So there are four distinct conversations around this miracle that only takes two verses to perform. And we're going to consider this over the next several weeks. It all starts with this man who was born blind, was a beggar who's healed by the power of Jesus. So let's look at the account. We're going to read verses 1 through 12. This is the inspired errant word of God. Hear it. As he passed by, He saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of God. Of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, No, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, Then how were your eyes open? He answered, The man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, Where is he? And he said, I do not know. This was a man born blind. Listen. He has a disability from birth, a birth defect. That's what congenital means, from birth, from the beginning. And when you contemplate this reality, that little babies are born with defects, little babies are born with abnormalities, little babies are born with things like blindness, spina bifida, cleft palate, or the most common in the United States, a heart defect. Some 40,000 babies a year are born with a heart defect in our country. This reality really brings about an obvious question. Why? Why are these children in the womb afflicted with these defects? Why is this child born this way? Why does this child experience this disability before he or she has ever done anything And this was a question in the minds of Jesus' disciples as they saw this man who they knew has been blind from birth. The context of this miracle is again, Jesus has left the temple. He walked out when they sought to kill him with stones. And it seems this blind beggar was beside the temple or near the temple, on the outskirts of the courts of the temple. We know this because it is near the temple that most beggars would take up residence, if you will. Why? Because worshipers worshipers who were coming in and out of the temple would be the most likely and the most intent on giving alms to the poor as they just sacrifice to cover their sins, aware of their guilt and sin, seeing a beggar who is disabled, they would be more likely to give a gift. So here's this beggar. He's unable to eat. He's unable to survive because he can't work. His only means of survival is begging, He is a fixture at the temple, and Jesus, with great intentionality, leads his disciples out of the gate closest to where this beggar was, and the text says he looked at him, he saw him, and the disciples noticed Jesus notice him, and so that's what prompted their question about the origin of this man's disability but in their question to Jesus about the why behind this congenital blindness we see the first thing I want us to consider this morning number one I want us to see that the disciples had an unbiblical presumption they made a presumption about this blind beggar that was really coming out of the ethic and the mindset of their day look again at verse two and his disciples asked him rabbi or teacher Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? So they had the belief and the mindset that a birth defect in a child is a direct consequence of someone's sin. Either it's a consequence of the man's sin or it's a consequence of the parent's sin. And friend, this is a question that many people wrestle with today. Why do bad things, awful things, happen to some people, but not to other people? Why do some people experience great difficulty in life, left to scavenge garbage to survive, and others experience great resource in their life? We have a default presumption in the world, bad things happen to bad people, and good things happen to good people. This is our default, morality and ethic. The default belief, the default religion is that good people go to heaven and bad people go to hell. It reminded me this week of a joke. It's an old joke. I've heard it and you have too, but I'll remind you of it. It Flows right out of this common misconception that there's a man who's in heaven and his friends are there and they see this man. And in life, this man was a pretty normal, plain, not that attractive, not very successful man. But his friends remarked to each other that, man, he's got the fattest mansion on the street. And this man has the nicest sports car in heaven. This man has the most beautiful wife on his arm. Now, we know this is not a theologically accurate joke. There is no marriage in heaven. But just for the sake of the joke, he's got the most beautiful wife on his arm. And one of the angels noticed their confusion about this man. They said, they said, listen, what, what is up with this? And the angel said, well, he lived such a good life in, this, in the earth that this is his reward in heaven. And one of his friends said, well, what about the woman? Well, she was not so good in life. You'll get that later. That's how many view life, and they look at eternity, that you get what you put in. We get to the pearly gates, and you get what you deserve. And beyond that, in this life, you get what you deserve. You look around and the unbiblical presumption that these disciples had, that good people get good things and bad people get bad things, that's the same ethic that functions in our world. Even spiritual people, even very biblically-minded people can have this concept. Think of Job and Job's so-called friends. That's what they accused Job of. One of his friends, Eliphaz, had this to say about Job's suffering in chapter four. Look at Job chapter four, beginning of verse seven. Eliphaz says, remember who that was innocent ever perished or where were the upright cut off? As I have seen those who plow iniquity and sow trouble, reap the same. What was Eliphaz saying to Job? He was saying, the reason you're having so many struggles, so many trials, so many tribulations, is because, Job, you obviously have some deep-seated, unconfessed sin. You deal with that sin, then things are going to start going a whole lot better for you, Job. But what was God's assessment of Job? God talked about Job to, of all people, Satan. And what did God say about Job in chapter 1, verse 8? Notice, The Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil. So think about it. Job's friends concluded the reason you have trials and sufferings and difficulties, Job, is because there's some sin in your life. But God says there's not another person on the planet as righteous as Job. What's the point? There is not always a direct connection between suffering and sin. Let me say that again. There is not always, there is not normally a direct connection between your suffering and some sin. Now, I said not always, because sometimes there is a direct connection. Sometimes there is a direct consequence for sin. We see this in the Bible as well. The very first one is Adam and Eve, They sinned, and they experienced an immediate consequence for their sin. You think of Miriam in Numbers chapter 12. She uh, spoke ill of Moses and his marriage to the Cushite woman, and what happened to her? She was struck with leprosy, and probably one of my favorite, although you shouldn't enjoy people's sufferings, but in 2 Kings chapter 2, the prophet Elisha is walking along, and these punk teenage kids come and say, hey, Elisha, you old-headed bald man, get up out of here. What happens? Two she-bears come out of the woods and tear them to shreds, right? It's kind of a little, for an old guy, it's kind of nice to see that. There was an immediate punishment for the sin. Again, but it's not always the case. Sometimes there is. But the people of Jesus' day, the Jewish folks, had developed this mindset that every trial, every difficulty every hardship you may experience is directly connected to some sin you have committed. So the questions the disciples asked is rooted in that flawed theology. Okay, Jesus, we've got two, two options for you. Why was this man born blind? Option A, he sinned. Now think about it. They said he was born blind. So when was he supposed to have sinned to be born blind? Well, there's only two options for that. Either he sinned in utero, in the womb, or he sinned in a previous life. Now, as God-fearing Jews, they did not believe in the Hindu ethic of reincarnation, and neither do we. There's no such thing as reincarnation. So it is true that in the first century, some Jews believed that children could sin in the womb. And some of you parents may agree, yeah, my kid came out sinning, that's for sure. The other option they present to Jesus, not he sinned, but his parents sinned. His parents committed some type of sin that caused him to end up this way. After all, we know this to be true, right? This is an ironclad truth. Good parents always have good kids. Bad parents always have bad kids, right? There's never any flaw to that idea. Now, although we would giggle at that, and we would verbally denounce that idea, one of the clearest accusations from the enemy to parents is this. This flaw in your child is your fault. This rebellion in your son is because of your parenting technique. This evil in your daughter is because of your sin. This keeping your cell phone turned on during the service because it reflects on your parents. Now, it is true. You could do good towards your children or you could do ill towards your children. We are called to train and instruct and disciple our children. And the way we train and instruct and disciple our children does impact and influence them. But we can fall into the trap of believing that everything they do, that our children are a walking, breathing billboard for our parental goodness. That somehow they represent us in everything they do. And because of this belief, we can become over-invested in the way our children live their lives. If you don't believe this, just go to the ball fields this spring and watch some parents lose their salvation over Johnny and Sally not playing correctly, projecting a poor reflection on their parental proficiency. We can maybe discount this in ourselves, but how often do we use this judgment on other people? Mm-hmm, that's what I thought. Some kids are acting up because of them parents, right? We also have this tendency and think, And even say things like this. Oh, he's going to get what's coming to him. I wonder what she did to deserve that. Karma's a big deal. What did you think I was going to say? (laughs) Karma does not exist. Karma does not exist. We can believe that we're in this Morally mechanical system, input good, output good, input bad, output bad. And it's not the system we live in. We live in a system and a world that God is the providential ordainer of all that happens. Now, in this instance, in John 9, Jesus could have corrected his disciples' errant thinking by saying, well, here's the deal, guys. All of creation has been stained and marred by sin. That's true. It's not that these parents did some specific sin, but because the world is corrupted by sin, there are sometimes abnormalities. There are sometimes chromosomes that get mixed up. There are sometimes genetic codes that are out of order. And this results in deformities and disabilities. That would be true, But that would not have specifically answered their question, which was fundamentally, why? Why? Why does this happen? And the other thing is, if we just simply look at the difficult things that happen in life as being a consequence of the fallen world in which we live, that's really viewing God from this deistic mindset. Deism, which was what Thomas Jefferson was, he was a deist, they believed in the existence of God, but they looked at God as something like the clockmaker. He creates the clock, he designs the clock, he winds the clock, and then he lets it go and removes his hands. That God's not involved or engaged in anything that happens in this world. And yes, we have a fallen world and its function according to God's laws and designs, but he's not engaged with it. That is not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is intimately engaged in every aspect of his creation. He knows about the little two-penny sparrow that falls in the woods, and nobody else knows about it. He is intimately engaged involved in his creation and so Jesus answers their unbiblical presumption by simply saying it was not that this man sinned or his parents in other words you've got it all wrong you're sorely mistaken but then he does go on to answer their fundamental question of why why was this man born with this defect and that leads to the second thing I want us to consider It's very shocking number two He discloses this unexpected purpose. There is a purpose. There is a reason behind this man's congenital disability. Look at verse 3 again. Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. I want you to circle those two words on your outline or in the Bible, but that. We know but is a conjunction, conjunction, junction. What's your function? A a conjunction connects two phrases or ideas. Here, the word but is a contrast. It's an adversative. Not this, but that. And that's the second word in this phrase, but that. This word that is the pivot upon which the whole chapter turns. Seems like a very inconsequential word, but it is profound. Not this, but that. The Greek word is the word henna. If you study Greek, you'll learn that there's something called a henna clause. And what a henna clause does is it presents to us a a purpose, a reason, an intention, Often the word "henna" in Greek is translated in our English Bibles in order that." In fact, I've got one example on the screen. Look at what John also wrote a couple chapters earlier in John 3:17. He says, "For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world." same two words, "Allah Henna," but in order that, the world might be saved through him." Did you see that? God had a very specific purpose for sending Jesus. It wasn't to bring condemnation, but to bring salvation. He sent him in the world, not for this, but in order that, for this purpose, for this reason, that he would accomplish this. And the same phrase is used here. He was not born with this birth defect because of some sin in his parents or even in the womb, but in order that, with this purpose, with this intention that the works of God would be displayed in him. Yes, disciples, there may be some physiological explanation for this blindness. There may be some spiritual explanation that sin has corrupted God's created order. But beyond those physiological and spiritual reasons, you need to understand, disciples, there is a much Larger, bigger reason why this man was born blind. In order that the works of God would be displayed in his disability. It's for the glory of God. Because God is all about his glory. And God's plan is not simply, listen, that he will respond to it. Some people make God out as only being the responder to bad things. He takes lemons and makes lemonade. He takes your pain and makes it a profession of faith. He takes your trouble and turns it into a triumph. And it is true. But that really removes the purpose and the intention of the henna clause. This man was born with a birth defect in order that God's works would be displayed in him. You see, God is just not a responder to things in our life. He is the sovereign, providential ordainer of all of history. Do you remember whenever God called Moses to be his spokesman to the people and to Pharaoh? What did Moses say to him? God, I cannot possibly be your spokesman. I stutter, stutter. You remember how God responded to Moses and his disability? Look at Exodus chapter 4, verse 11. Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Pretty applicable to our study today. Is it not I, the Lord? Who determines if a child has a defect at birth? Is it just happenstance? Or is God providentially ordering all things in the universe? He says, Moses, you can be my spokesman because in your deficiency, my strength is made perfect. I can remember hearing of a mother who tragically lost her child in the hospital, died. And the hospital chaplain came to see her, to console her, and she just simply said, I'm just trying to make sense of this. Why would God allow my child to die? And the well-meaning chaplain said, oh, man, God had nothing to do with your child dying. And she said, don't take any shred of hope that I have away. What does that mean? You take God out of the equation of suffering, where's the meaning? Where's the purpose Where's the intention? Back in 2020, providentially, you remember 2020, right? We try to forget that year. We started in January studying verse by verse through the book of Genesis. We didn't know what was going to take us, what we would be taken through in 2020. But as we concluded that study, looking at the life of Joseph, if you'll remember in chapter 50, Joseph's brothers were real concerned when Jacob, their father, died. Because they presumed the only reason Joseph has not executed vengeance on us for the way we mistreated him so many years ago is because dad's still alive. Now that dad's dead, uh uh-oh, Joseph is going to come after us. Remember that? How did Joseph respond to their false assumption? Look at Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. As for you, you meant, that's intention, that's purpose, You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. It's not that God turned it to good. God transformed it to good. God worked it for good. God meant their evil against him for good. Wow. All the junk he went through, thrown into a pit, Sold into slavery to some gypsies, uh, uh, falsely accused by Potiphar's wife, forgotten in prison by the cupbearer, all that evil that transpired because of his brothers, God meant it for good. You still may not be convinced. But, Pastor, this is a little bitty innocent baby born with a birth defect, born with this problem. Often as pro-life Christians, those who are opposed to the slaughter of innocent babies in the womb called abortion, we will often quote Psalm 139 to describe how every baby is knit together in the womb of a mother, and that knitting together by their creator gives them great value and dignity and worth. Like notice what Psalm 139 verse 13 and 14 says. For you formed my inward parts, You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. Now let me ask you a question. Does Psalm 139.13 only apply to babies who don't have defective parts? Does Psalm 139 only apply to babies who don't have an extra chromosome and are born with Down syndrome? Does it include those babies? Yes. Do not look at a Down syndrome child and say, no purpose, no meaning should not be alive. They have great purpose. God knit them together, even with what we would call flawed design or defects. God has a great intention for those babies. That's why we are opposed to abortion. Because God's the one who determines who lives and who dies. But you know, perhaps the greatest and clearest picture of God ordaining suffering for good is this right here. The cross of Jesus. Is there anyone more perfectly innocent than Christ? Is there anyone more perfectly not worthy of death than Jesus? The great, immeasurable suffering of taking upon his own body the punishment for the sins of the world. It was ordained by a good, good father. In fact, it is this reality that compelled the early church. In Peter's first sermon, in the first sermon of the church in Acts chapter 2, notice what he said in part in verse 23 of Acts 2. Peter says, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. He was killed because of sinners, according to the purpose of God. In fact, this reality is what compelled and motivated the early church when they encountered tribulation and persecution and hardships. Two chapters later, the leaders of the early church, Peter and John, would be arrested, would be put on trial, would be beaten for preaching the gospel of Jesus. And the church gathered together for a prayer meeting. What informed their prayers for their persecuted brethren? Look at chapter 4, verse 27. They pray to the Lord for truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. It is this knowledge of the providential hand of God in the midst of the deepest, suffering that propelled the early Christians to go forward. God is in this, God is working this. And so we can approach the suffering in our lives. We can think, what's the henna cloths? What's the purpose statement here? In John 9, the purpose of God in the blindness of this man was that he would be healed by the power of Jesus and that through that healing, the identity and the nature and the character of Jesus would be proclaimed there in the early first century Jewish world. But listen, God's purposes in our suffering may not always include healing. God's intention in your pain may not always include deliverance it sometimes does but sometimes the greatest path to glory is God being with you in that pain the apostle Paul experienced this in 2 Corinthians he talked about a thorn in the flesh a messenger angelos of Satan we don't know what that was and I don't think we're meant to know but Paul prayed. He said, three times I prayed that God would remove this thorn in my flesh, this affliction from the evil one. How did God respond? Well, Paul, you just don't have enough faith. If you just believe a little harder and believe a little more, if you just exercise your faith, then this would be, you would have deliverance. It's not what God says. It's not what Jesus says. Notice what Paul says. Jesus said to him, with this difficulty, this trial and struggle. Verse 9 of 2 Corinthians 12. But he said to me, this is Jesus speaking, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities, for when I am weak, then I am strong. You may be here this week, and what you're going through could be described with all those terms, weaknesses, insults, hardships, calamities. God, deliver me from this junk. And the Lord says, no. But in this suffering, here's my clause. My strength will be perfected in you your weakness and this may be even a more glorious work of god by his spirit than if you were healed of some disease or some congenital disformity this man was born blind not because something didn't fire right in the birth canal but because god had a purpose in it blind for the glory of god and those sign miracles, this being the 6th of 7 in John, portray Jesus as the only Son of God and the only hope, the only Savior for the world. But here's the thing. The way in which Jesus does that makes us scratch the hair on our chinny-chin-chin. What are you doing, Lord? That leads to the third point. We've got two more real quickly. Jesus uses an unprecedented process. He spit on the ground. And he made some mud in the dirt with his saliva. And he anointed the man's eyes with the mud. This is the only place this happens, right here in John chapter 9. John again records seven miracles, and each one of those is recorded specifically to present to us some aspect of Jesus' nature, And again, he says at the end of this gospel account, there's not enough books to hold all the miracles that Christ performed. In fact, the four gospel accounts together, they record only 35 miracles. I believe Jesus had a wake of healing as he walked throughout Galilee and Judea. But only 35 in the four gospels recorded for us. And they don't always have the same process. Sometimes Jesus Touches the infirmed person, sometimes he just speaks. Sometimes he heals them in their presence, sometimes he's miles and miles away and he heals them. Not always the same process. Even with the five occurrences of Jesus healing someone who is blind in the four gospel accounts, they don't all happen the same. In um, Matthew chapter 9, there are two people who are blind who are following Jesus. Jesus touches, just touches, no spit, no mud, just touches their eyes, and they're healed. In Mark chapter 9, a a blind man comes to Jesus, and Jesus spits in his eyes. He says, open your eyes, and he says, hey, I see men like trees. Everything's kind of fuzzy and out of focus. So Jesus touches him again, healed. You get to Luke chapter 18, there's a blind beggar following Jesus, and he just speaks, and he's healed. There's not the same process in any of them. But here, uniquely, Jesus makes some mud pies. Here is mud in your eyes. (laughs) Very strange. Again, this is the only instance where Jesus does this. There is great speculation among the scholars I read this week as to why Jesus does it. Some presume that, well, God made man from the dust of the earth, and Jesus is proving that he is in fact the creator by taking dust from the earth and recreating the man's eyes. Perhaps But I think within the context of this chapter, we learn in the next paragraph that it was in fact on the Sabbath day when Jesus made these mud cakes and put them in the man's eyes. And the Pharisees considered making mud pies as work. You shall not make mud pies on the Sabbath day. It breaks our traditions, our rules and regulations. In fact, I think my personal opinion is that Jesus made the mud, not because he needed it to heal the man, but he made the mud because he was going to reveal how his adversaries, they are more concerned with their rituals and rules and regulations than they are the health of this blind beggar. Another aspect to the process that is unique here is that Jesus tells the man, go to the pool of Siloam and wash off the mud. Why did he do that? Again, we're not told why. I can presume and I can think that maybe Jesus sent him to the pool because people would see him coming to the pool with mud on his eyes. (laughs) He would wash, and immediately, he would be able to see. And it would create quite a stir around the pool and around the temple. In fact, it did, because the next four paragraphs are filled with conversation and dialogue around this work. And I think this certainly pictures for us what the true convert to Christ should be like. Everyone who is converted to Christ, who has been made to see from their spiritual blindness, those around you should know about it. Your friends, your neighbors, your colleagues, your coworkers, your family. And I would ask you, is there evidence in your life that Christ has healed you from your spiritual blindness? Do they know? And that really leads to the fourth and final thing I want us to see from this passage. Number four, an unambiguous profession. There were some who saw the man and said, hey, isn't that the guy who was a blind beggar at the gate of the temple complex? Other people said, no, he he just looks like him. He favors him. I can see where you would think that, but no, that's not really him. I said, no, I'm pretty sure that's him. No, that couldn't possibly be him. And I love what the text says at the end of verse nine. He kept saying, I am the man. Now, when we say I am the man, that's kind of a prideful thing. I'm the man. Come on, I'm the man. No, that's not what he was saying. They're debating, is this the guy? Hey, yeah, I'm him. No, no, he couldn't possibly be the guy. No, really, I'm him. No, you look like him, but you're not really him. Are you related to him? No, I am the man. And I love the straightforward answer he gives to them because they question, well, then how do you see? Look at verse 11 again. He answered The man called Jesus, made mud, and he anointed my eyes, said to me, go to to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. Now, the man does mention the strange process, but I believe what he's focusing is not on the how, but the who. Jesus. He healed me. The man named Jesus. Jesus. He anointed my eyes. He told me to go wash. And now I've received my sight. And friends, this is a good example for us as well. We have a responsibility to not only tell what has happened to us, but who did it. Does the name of Jesus, not God or the Lord, though those are true, does the name Jesus come off your lips? When you talk to people about who you are, and why you exist, this man, Jesus, has changed my life. Our greatest privilege, listen, is speaking of Jesus and telling others of his saving grace. And then look again at verse 12. They said to him, where is he? And he said, I do not know. <laughs> I don't know where he went to. Again, it's very interesting that after telling the man to go wash in the pool of Siloam, Jesus doesn't stay around to see, uh, did it work? He's gone. We don't know where he is. He doesn't show up again until the end of this chapter, verse 35, when he comes to minister to this man who's being unfairly persecuted by the Jewish religious leaders. He withdraws from the whole situation. But he gave his profession He told people, and we'll see next week, he continues to tell them, I was blind, and now I can see. And friends, that's what we're called to do as well. We are entrusted with the glorious gospel of Christ that when we step out those doors in just a few minutes, we are stepping into our mission field. And we are called to give testimony to the great salvation, to the great healing that we've received. That's why the great hymn of the faith says this, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. What's the next phrase? Was blind, but now I see. And friend, if he's done that for you, he will use your testimony in spite of you to bring life and sight to other people as well. And that leads to my last thought. As we walk in obedience to the Lord, like this man, go wash at the pool, then we will experience his power released in us and released through us. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.